What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage episode 80, where I'm going to be talking Mario Van Peebles solo, Clerks 3 that just came out. Thank you, Austin James, for recommending that to me. I'm going to be talking three bands, Budgie, Necros, Oi Scouts. Actually, I take that back, four, Jurassic 5, because I don't feel like really anybody talks about them. Still just been playing Rage on 360 and Sparks of Hope on Switch, and I would like to talk to you guys about the Famicom Disk System as well as Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> I don't know. It's just something fun that I like to do, just talk really fast. But uh, two movies, haven't really watched too much. I'm going to be talking a, uh, I guess, I think a stoner metal band that doesn't really get enough love. Uh, Necros, which is a late 70s punk band, early 80s. Uh, I feel like they go into the radar a lot. Oi Scouts is in the same vein as like Global Threat, Deviance, Casualties uh, type stuff. That Same thing, I feel like they don't really get talked about a lot. And uh, you know what, I don't really talk about hip-hop that much, so I'm going to be talking about Jurassic 5. Uh, still been just playing my, uh, 360. I have my switch and I'm, I'm thinking about, cause I have all my minis too. I'm thinking about maybe busting out and, you know, just playing like an hour or two of like an old, uh, you know, platformer shooter arcade game, whatever, and just seeing if I can beat it. And then that way I can talk about it. Cause I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just have so much, I have such a backlog of games to play. And I wanted to talk to you guys about the Famicom disc system because I don't feel like it really gets enough talked about whatsoever. And then, uh, Stretch Armstrong only because, uh, same thing. I don't really feel like it gets talked about as well as um, it, they've been kind of making like not necessarily a resurgence or a revival, but I've seen like miniature toys of Stretch Armstrong. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. Um, I'm thinking about it. Let's talk about it. So there you have it. Uh, episode 80, kind of a little bit of everything, but let's go. Well, before I get into uh, what I aforementioned just about a minute ago, uh, I actually just stumbled upon ranking the 11 best survival games of all time. And number 11 is The Evil Within 2014. Personally, I've never played it. It's very much like a Shinji effort of like uh, Resident Evil. Uh, it's a make of like old school survival horror gameplay and its structure is relevant still. Uh, I remember watching friends of mine play it. I have it on 360. I've yet to play it only because probably because I watched the story and I'm like, okay, well... Maybe down the road I'll play it. I, I think I have it on my uh, like most recent need to kind of play, I guess, backlog of library things, if you will. But uh, yeah, Evil Within looked really cool. Like I said, I, I pretty much already played it, having watched it being played just a couple of years ago. Number 10, Alien Isolation. I got stuck. I played it on 360. It was a Sega's surprise hit, according to this. came out in 2014. Um... I, I remember, I think I was, I was trying to get past like a xenomorph and I literally just kept dying and dying, and dying on like the space station. And I, I was like, I not necessarily rage quit, but I mean, I just like rage stopped. How about that? I was just like done. Like I'm over it. I will never play this ever again. Maybe I need to get back into it. I don't know. It was beautiful to look at even on 360 having played it then. But uh, all right, moving on. Let's see what number nine is. Uh, Amnesia, The Dark Descent. I want to say I've heard of this. Uh, came out 2010. I don't necessarily know what platform it's on. Excuse me for those of you who know games in this regard, and I don't. Um, I don't even know what to say about it. I feel like I've heard of it. I don't know what platform it's on. Moving on. Dead Space. I have... Dead Space is number eight, by the way, 2008. There is the remake, obviously. Same with, like, there's the remake of, like, what, like, Last of Us and all these other, like, remakes are coming out. I'm actually really stoked for Super Mario RPG on Switch because I love that game on Super Nintendo. But back to uh, survival horror games. Um... I don't think I've, I want to say maybe I've played a little bit of Dead Space 1. I don't think I ever beat it. I know I own 2 and 3, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if I have the first one. And I don't really care, personally, if I play these games out of order. Like, having not really given too much time to Resident Evil, which I'm sure it's going to be on here. At least the first, probably 3. I've only really played and beaten 4, 5, and 6, and I loved those. I own 7. 
I don't know if I own eight, but uh, I would definitely like to get back into them. Like I said, I don't, it doesn't really bother me if I'm playing them out of order. I can always just Google a story later. It's not that big of a deal. But uh, Dead Space, influenced by Resident Evil and Silent Hill, uh, introduced a number of innovations that keeping it feel like a retread uh, in relation to, I guess, uh, the descent of nightmarish uh, realms today. You know, But yeah, it's it's cool from what I remember sort of playing. I didn't really play it entirely through. I definitely intend to soon, though. Condemned. Uh, I have that one, actually, on my uh, 360. I, I played it a little bit. Um, there is actually a surprise sequel. The first one came out in 2005. Um, it's kind of like a detective-type story. It's really cool. It's like... I don't know. It's almost like playing like Twin Peaks meets like, I don't know, CSI, but with a horror element to it. I guess that's kind of how I viewed it. Um, I definitely have a loose copy of it here in my uh, drawer next to me. I, I should get back into that after I uh, beat Rage. Yeah, that's that should be the next one that I play. Next time, I need to play Metal Gear Solid. I know, Austin. I will. I will. I just, I need to pull out my, uh, my uh, PlayStation 1 Classic. Let's see what number six is. Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. I hear great things. I've seen it played. It looks like uh, a modern-day Resident Evil meets, I guess, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Toby Hooper, the original. It's, you know, avoiding, outsmarting the various members of the Baker family. will have you holding your breath in boss fights, monstrous battles that will have you out of your seat. I have it on PlayStation 4. Perhaps I need to pull out my PlayStation 4 out of, uh, you know, the storage in my garage. I, I just need my own place, man. That's neither here nor there. But, all right, moving on. Number five, Stalker. I don't even know what to say about it. Came out 2007. Shadow of Chernobyl. Chernobyl, however you want to pronounce it. Sunny and Chernobyl. How about that? How about that, suckers? Anyway, <laughs> I don't I don't know what to say about this one. I, I don't know it. Never heard of it. Moving on. Number four, Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem. I remember this on GameCube. It was uh it was a really cool um just idea. The fact that like your memory card would mess with you, the actual AI, the computer would mess with you. Uh, you know, it demonstrates everything that is wrong with gaming. What? Hang on. Eternal, why is it Why is it uh, talking trash? I, I thought it was really cool. Undeniably scary, truly innovative. Sold fewer than half a million copies. Well, that's because it's the GameCube. Unfortunately, it kind of flopped because, as I've said before at the time, PlayStation 2 kind of had its hand in the market as well as Microsoft's uh, original Xbox because of the idea of it being a DVD player and GameCube obviously having the little tiny optical disc. I think that was their uh, falter there, personally. But uh, It's a crime that such a masterpiece has been left to languish for so long. We need to see a sequel, remake, or re-release as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Because, I mean, the game alone, uh, GameCube prices are, you know, skyrocketing up and up and through the roof. I want to say loose. I mean, you know what? Here, I got you. Price charting. I'm going to take a guess before I decide to pull it up. I'm going to say loose, maybe 80 bucks. I'm going to say complete in box, maybe probably 120 just a guess. Uh, Eternal Darkness. Let's take a look. GameCube. Loose. I was close. 73. Um, it looks like complete in box 95. Knowing game stores, they want to make a profit. It's probably going to be 110, 120. And I get that. I do. But I really wish they would kind of just sell it for what it goes for online. But then obviously they're not going to make a profit and they're not going to be able to keep the lights on. So I get that. But, uh, no, that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So I was pretty close there. All right. Back to... The uh, list, number three, what do we got here? Resident Evil 2 Remake. I hear really good things. That would probably be the definitive way that I would personally, having never played Resident Evil 2, this is how I would personally like to at least uh, get involved with it and playing it. Uh, Resident Evil 2 Remake came out in 2019. I've seen it before, anywhere between probably 20 to 30 bucks. I probably should just get it. I just, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I've just been really 
wanting to just play JRPGs. They're just so time consuming. And then like, I guess the way that I take breaks is I'll play like an old platformer or old shooter on, you know, Sega or uh, I don't know, Dreamcast or something just quick and easy just to have fun with. Number two is Silent Hill 2 2001, which I can probably get on board with that. I mean, having never played Silent Hill, but I've heard many people talk about it. I've seen, you know, breakdowns and story development and all that, whatever, yada, yada from Konami. Uh, It seems like, yeah, the second one is the uh, most favored of all of the uh, Silent Hill games. So number two, Silent Hill 2 2001. Number one, I was going to guess Resident Evil 1, but I am very impressed that it is number four. Resident Evil 4 is number one, 2005. Taking the spot on our top list, best survival horror. It's not really a survival horror in the same vein as the first trilogy of Resident Evil, though. It's more like an arcade. Is it probably it escapes the bounds of it being typically just a survival horror, and then exemplified it with the arcade feel and molded it together. It's an amalgamation of both elements, and it it's very influential, and it works, and it renovated and innovated just so much. I mean, you can finally move with the uh, crosshairs. You weren't just standing still with next to no crosshair. How about that? But uh, yeah, I I played it on GameCube, loved it. I'd like to get it on, yeah, probably GameCube again. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, I've heard that it's a little different on PS2. I know there's a Wii version, but I'm like, "Eh, I don't know about the Wii version. But uh, I'm not hating on the Wii. I've had a good time with my uh, Wii. Not my own personal Wii. Ha, 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 ha. Bad joke. But anyway, uh, yeah, number one, Resident Evil 4, 2005. All right, there you have it. That is the list of uh, best survival horror games, 1 out of 11. Number 1 being Resident Evil 4. Hell yeah, I love that game. All right, moving on. Let's talk some other stuff. All right, what's going on, guys? I'm going to be talking to you about Solo. came out in 1996 with Mario Van Peebles. But before I get into that, I'm actually listening to Mississippi John Hurt, King of the Blues. It's pretty solid. I think it's live, but... I don't know, I'm very hit or miss when it comes to live albums. That or I might get back into the uh, compilation of the uh, uh, stoner metal desert rock stuff. But anyway, back to Solo. Came out in 1996, PG-13. I picked up a VHS copy, I believe, at Saver's Thrift Store for a dollar flat. Can't beat that. It is an hour and 34 minutes. It has a 4.1 out of, I laugh because it's it's okay. 4.1 out of uh, four and a half thousand, or how about 4.5 thousand uh, individuals who reviewed this? How about that? Uh, it's part man, part machine, total weapon. Prepare to go solo. That's the uh, tagline, motto, slogan, I guess, on this cover art. It basically pictured like Terminator meets Universal Soldier. And it's it's corny, but it has a good corny charm to it. Uh, it's an action sci-fi thriller. A robot soldier named Solo escapes after learning that he will be deprogrammed and helps a village who are under attack by the rebels. Directed by Norberto Barba. Let's see what else this guy did. Uh, Better Call Saul, a couple episodes. Oh, well, actually, only one episode. Uh, Grimm, the TV series, Law and Order. Okay, so, I mean, I guess he's mostly done TV. Sure, whatever, right on. All right, moving back. back. Backpedal, I guess, if you will. Starring Mario Van Peebles and William Sadler. William Sadler being uh, the guy who played Death in uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. You sunk my battleship. You know, I, I feel like I keep watching films, ev- excuse me, evidently with him in it. And I'm like, all right, cool, I, I can get on board with that. So they are both in it. Anybody else that I personally recognize that are worth mentioning to you? Oh, Adrian Brody is uh, Dr. Bill Stewart. That's right. Adrian Brody's been in a lot. Very, very famous actor. All right. Let me see what else we got here. Trivially, I love doing this. Here we go. PG-13 for combat and language. Yeah, sure. Why not? 
Uh, trivially, not very much here. Sorry, guys. The program on the TV that the people in the village is The Day the Earth Stood Still, 1951. That is a classic. I prefer that version over the Keanu Reeves version. Nothing against Keanu Reeves. Like, I like his, uh, you know, obscure, I guess, sci-fi action stuff. Obviously, like, uh, Constantine, which is more, I guess, like, demonic action. I don't even know how to classify that one. Speaking of which, there's going to be a Constantine 2 coming out here pretty soon. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Uh, 2018's Solo, a Star Wars story, included the subtitle so as not to be confused with this film. Uh, I mean, I I don't think anybody probably would have been confused, I guess, unless it's literally like straight to TV individual people who know this kind of stuff. Otherwise, it probably would have passed and nobody would have cared. <laughs> the villagers are watching the film Earth vs. Flying Saucers, uh, 1956. So they need to figure out who's right and who's wrong it says the day there is still or earth versus flying saucers i think what i saw from what i remember was earth versus flying saucers so i think trivially the one that says the day the earth stood still 1951 is incorrect even though somebody clearly gave it a thumbs up whatever moving on there's next to nothing on this film most tv adaptations to straight to vhs were pretty poor so whatever uh, what do we got here? Released August 23rd, 1996. Uh, countries of origin, obviously Mexico. That's definitely, yeah, you can tell it's filmed in Mexico. Budget, 19 million, incredibly. Grossed, 5 million. <laughs> 5.1 to be exact worldwide. So clearly it flopped, 14 million. Uh, they owe a lot of people money back. How about that? All right. According to Wikipedia, <clears throat> directed by Norberto Barba, starring Maya Van Peebles, William Sadler, Adrian Brody. Based on the 1989 novel Weapon by Robert Mason. Adapted into a screenplay by Columbia TriStar Pictures. Usually whenever I see the Columbia TriStar, I'm always like, alright, I'm in for a treat. But it was it was just okay. I, I've definitely watched better corny action. I mean, I barely could get into it, to be honest with you guys. Uh, here, I'll even read off the plot for you. Uh, Solo is an android designed by a military killing machine. Sent to Central America by General Haynes to battle guerrilla insurgents. A uh, flaw develops in his programming, and he develops a conscience and a compassion for anything and everything, really. Developers try to take him back from deprogramming. He flees to a jungle. His main energy supply was damaged during the first mission, forcing him to switch into a much less uh, powerful secondary power. And when you see aspects of his screen, you know, from him, uh, from his perspective, looking through his eyes out into the world, it's like kind of like how Terminator would pull up, like, you know, certain words like, fuck you, asshole, like stuff like that. I mean, it's... It's very reminiscent of that. It's basically a ripoff of that. At least that's how I viewed it. Uh, his main energy supply was damaged during the first... Okay, he joins a small village community that is under constant threat from the guerrilla attackers. He protects them in exchange for use of their electric generator. There he learns to bluff from a child that befriends him, Miguel. He helps the villagers drive off local warlord Rio, Rio excuse me, and his small army, but the combat... Compat. Yes, there it is. Can't fucking speak English. His combat is detected by a military satellite. A Black Ops team is sent to recover and destroy Solo with the ally of Rio. Uh, Black Ops members bring in uh, Solo's creator as a lure, leaving the man mortally wounded, but Solo survives. Rio is betrayed by Madden. Yeah, John Madden here with the <laughs> in the jungle throwing footballs at an android. <laughs> Jesus. Whew. Who tries to kill Solo with an automatic grenade launcher. Solo is able to fight Madden in a hand-to-hand -hand combat and play NFL Blitz. No, I'm just kidding. I threw that in because I thought it was funny. And non-fatally break his spine. Suddenly, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, Madden is uh, William Sadler's character. Uh, kills Madden, proceeds to hunt down Solo. Solo rescues the villagers, destroy the android after the Temple of Miguel. I don't even want to finish reading it because it's just, it was just okay. I'm glad I only paid a dollar for it. I'm definitely keeping it because it's just one of those weird things. 
production. At one point, producer Lawrence Gordon had initially purchased the rights to Weapon, the novel it's based on, along with the options on other books penned by Robert Mason, the uh, novelist. Following his work directing Panther, Mario Van Peebles was looking for a project that would provide him a complex character to play and felt solo with its uh, depictions of indigenous people under the threat of superior technology proved an opportunity to do so for him. It was entirely shot in Puerto Vallarta. Critical response, 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well-deserved because it's honestly just, yeah, I, I like bad movies, but whew, it's, it's bad. Based on 36 reviews with the consensus stating featuring hammy performances and bland characters. Yes, very much so. Solo is an all-too-straightforward actioner that it's both predictable and instantly forgettable. Yep, well, well said. Sorry, guys, not much on this action film. Uh, I've definitely watched better ones, but uh, I'm still glad I watched it nonetheless. It's just it's just not that good. You, you can watch better action films. I even like Mario Van Peebles as Jake in Jaws the Revenge, the fourth film better than this film. I don't know. Maybe that's just nostalgia talking, but there it is. Solo, moving on to the next film. What's going on, guys? I'm going to be talking to you guys now about Clerks 3. I just watched it last night. Thank you, Elsa James, for the recommendation. I'm glad that I watched it. Uh, still listening to Mississippi John Hurt, King of the Blues album. Clerks 3 came out last year, apparently under the radar. I had no idea that this is basically an accumulation of 1 and 2. It's like a documentary of 1 and 2, but very meta and very breaking the fourth wall. And it's it's incredibly depressing, but it's like depressing in a good way. Like it just makes you relive, you know, all of the Kevin Smith stuff, you know, like chasing Amy. Obviously, they're talking about, uh, you know, mall rats in there, the references to that, uh, among many other like clerks or excuse me, uh, Kevin Smith related view askew uh, productions. Uh, I think one that goes under the radar personally with uh, Kevin Smith's is uh, was it drawing flies about Sasquatch. Like nobody talks about that one. But, uh, well, shit, maybe I'll have to talk about it now that I wish it into fruition. But I like all the uh, cameos, you know, uh, what, Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ben Affleck. Like, so many people just show up in this. But Clerks 3, last year, rated R, of course it is, because it's it's vulgar, and it's supposed to be, uh, in color and in black and white. Rated R, hour and 40 minutes, 6.3 out of 16,000 reviews. I'd at least give it a 7. I, I enjoyed it for what it was, because it was cool to see everything come together. Still being a fan of the first two, much more so than this uh, on the reel, for sure. It is a comedy drama. Dante, Elias, and Jay and Silent Bob, of course, are enlisted by Randall after a heart attack to make a movie about the convenience store that started it all. Directed by Kevin Smith, written by Kevin Smith, not surprised. Starring Brian O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, and Vincent Pereira. I don't know why I said it like that, but I'm going to keep it in there. <laughs> I didn't mean to say it like that. Ah, oh, boy. Brian O'Halloran as Dante. Jeff Anderson as Randall. Uh, what else we got here? Brian Johnson, hockey player. Uh, what else we got? Jason Mewes, of course, plays Jay. Kevin Smith plays, obviously, Silent Bob, for those of you that already know. Trevor Fairman is Elias. What else we got here? Let's look at all cast and crew. That way I can take a look at all the cameos. I should have wrote them all down. I definitely didn't, though. What do we got here? Um, Justin Long, that's right. Yeah, the shaving nurse. He even had, like, a goofy accent. I thought it was hilarious. Rosario Dawson makes a, uh, I guess ghostly apparition appearance i guess if you will sarah michelle geller as i mentioned fred armison uh danny trejo that's right i forgot he even makes like a machete like reference pretty funny donnell rollins i forgot uh that he made like a tiny little cameo in it ben affleck of course donnell rollins i don't know man i just don't find him as funny as like other comedians but whatever uh like i said freddie prince jr anthony michael hall of course of course 
anybody else that I recognize? Geez, there's a huge list of people in this. All right, I'm going to backtrack here. I'm going to go to a... I'm going to scroll down here. Trivially, let's take a look. I'm sure there's probably some interesting stuff on this. Kevin Smith announced in 2017 that Clerks 3 was off the table after falling out with his friend Jeff Anderson, who played Randall Graves in Clerks 94 and then Clerks 2 2006. I remember uh, Clerks 2006, excuse me, the sequel when it came out because I was in high school and it was like a big deal between me and like all the homies like talking about it. Where that? I thought I had a water. I'm tripping. I was about to grab my sunscreen and take a sip of that. Yeah, that would have been real good. Anderson had read the script but uh, chose not to be involved. Smith canceled the project and made Giant Silent Bob reboot 2019 instead. It was it was okay, the reboot. Uh, two weeks before Giant Silent Bob reboot was released, however, Smith revealed that he had spent an entire day signing the Clerks film memorabilia together with Anderson and Jason Mewes. The reunion allowed them to patch things up and provided him with such uh, inspiration that he immediately threw away the old script and started working on a new one with ideas that Anderson was receptive to. According to Smith, it will be a movie that concludes a saga about how you're never too old to completely change your life, about how decades spanning friendship finally confronts the future. And rightly so. That's basically what I just said. It, it's, it's a conclusion to the trilogy, I guess, if you will. It's his Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 is probably how it's supposed to be viewed, and it works. Uh, they use the actual, or excuse me, trivially still... The actual Quick Stop grocery location from the first Clerks film in New Jersey is now run by the son of the original owner, unlike the first film, which only could be shot at night, hence why the shutters were jammed. The store was closed for two weeks, which allowed for scenes to be shot during the day. Previously, the Quick Stop location in Silent Bob reboot was a facade built in New Orleans, which had a much bigger parking lot and different surroundings. I don't think I knew that. That's pretty cool. During the operation scene to save Randall, the theme song to Degrassi, oh geez, the next generation is used... That is based on what Kevin Smith experienced during his own heart attack operation, as he'd stated was the song playing in his head that kept him in a good mood during the procedure that saved his life. Wow, okay. That's incredible. Uh, the character played by Ethan Suple, Suple, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, excuse me, uh, auditions using taglines said by his character in the movie Mallrats. Uh, well, of course, yeah, he's like, I can finally, what does he say? He's like, I, can, I still can't fucking see the boat. Like, pretty funny. Oh, boy. During the heart attack operation scene, Randall tells Dr. Leidenham, Amy Sedaris, about the Disney Plus show The Mandalorian. On the show, Sedaris plays the character Paley Moto in a recurring role. That's funny. Rosario Dawson, who returns as the ghost of Becky from Clerks 2, plays Jedi Knight Ahsoka, Ahsoka Tano. Of course she does, in The Mandalorian. And gets a thank you in the end credits for taking a long time of that show. Or taking, excuse me. It's a thank you for taking... I don't even know how to fucking... I don't even know... I can't even read my own computer. An appearance as Forced Ghost in Clerks 3. And that's funny. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. All right. Mississippi John Hurt almost has like a Bob Dylan uh, influence. I like that. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Scrolling down. Released September 16, 2022 in the UK of all things. I didn't know that. Uh, filmed at Quick Stop Groceries in New Jersey. The actual filming location. That's pretty cool. Obviously produced by View Askew and Destro Films. Box office, $7 million, Very, very low. And it only grossed $4 million, But for him, being such a fanboy of, you know, having made so many films, being the comic book nerd as he is, I'm sure he's doing just fine, even though he lost $3 million. I'm sure he'll live. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say. 2022 dark comedy drama. Yeah, sure. I actually, I really like the uh, cover art here. That's really cool. I can't see what it says. I want to read what the, uh... can I scroll... Can I zoom in? What does it say? Same shift, different day. Ha, ah, that's funny. I just realized. I, I get that. That's funny. Okay, let me uh, zoom out here a little bit. Okay. Oh, boy. The film had its world premiere September 4th uh, and then 
re-released, I guess, a week later with a production of $7 million, grossing 4.7 at the box office. Okay, all right, all right. Development-wise, that's what I like getting into. Production. Okay. During the press for discussed possibility of Clerks 3, stating that it's never going to be a Clerks 3. It would be somewhere down the road in my 40s or 50s. Wow. Might be interesting to check back on Dante and Randall, but I don't know about Jay and Silent Bob so much because that 45 leaning on a wall in front of a convenience store might be a little sad. Yes, agreed. But still funny in its own right. Smith repeated that the sentiment on one audio commentary tracks of Clerks 2, which Jeff Anderson jokingly replied, oh, don't even get me started, referring to Anderson's well-known doubts about making Clerks 2 when they first approached him. Okay. On March 29, 2012, Smith expressed his interest in producing Clerks 3 as a Broadway play after seeing the Teresa Rebeck comedy Seminar starring Alan Rickman, Alan Rickman, rest in peace, with whom Smith had previously worked on Dogma. Dogma was a classic of his... Uh, hence the Ben Affleck uh, cameo. I'm surprised Matt Damon wasn't in it. Matt Damon. Classic film. Whoever gets that reference. Thank you. On December 10th, 2012, Smith released a special Hollywood Babylon. I wonder if that's a uh, Misfits reference. That would be cool. Uh, I love Misfits. Okay, anyway. Hollywood Babylon. A giant size annual. Number one. Clerks 3. Audience 0. That's funny. Which he revealed a greater details on his plans for the... Uh, trilogy i guess conclusion film if you will with uh causing a delay on several keys uh, cast and crew members including anderson who plays randall graves and scott Mosier, from coming on board until the audit was resolved uh smith also revealed that he would like to crowdsource clerks 3 either through kickstarter or indiegogo contributors receiving anything from dvds posters even roles as extras in the film in order to help promote his film that's pretty cool on June 5th, 2013, he changed his mind on crowdsourcing, stating that I've gotten access to money, and worst case scenario, I can put up my house. Wow. He was willing to go all out. Original script, 2013-2017. Worked on a script for the uh, third film, stating when he completed it, it was the Empire Strikes Back of the series. What did I say earlier? It was the, the trilogy that he made here was basically his own 4, 5, and 6 Star Wars. New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Come on, man. I, I already called it. I just it make It makes perfect sense. This script featured a story about Randall having a nervous breakdown after the quick stop is destroyed by Hurricane Sandy and trying to manage it, uh, getting in line for a film called Ranger Danger, which is pretty funny because there's a lot of Ranger Danger posters as well as he has a Ranger Danger shirt on pretty much the entire film. After the quick stop is destroyed and trying to manage it, getting it into uh, a film called Ranger Danger before it opens, Randall would have gained a small cult following and set up his own miniature quick stop, only there to be a shooting at the theater. On July 13th, or excuse me, July 2013, Jason Mewes stated that there was now just waiting to hear back from the Weinstein Company about funding. Wow. Filming was initially scheduled for May of 2015 for this original uh plot but the production was put on hold to film another sequel mall rats 2 however by june 2016 the plans for a mall rats sequel had been turned into a plans for a mall rats tv series wow there's just so much that it just keeps altering like different titles and they keep working on different projects wow production stalls initial plans for uh clerks 3 came to halt in 2017 this is all news to me so i mean obviously i, I think i would like to be conveying news to you guys as well for those of you that are fans of these view askew and kevin smith productions moving on when Smith announced that one of the four leads, whom he later revealed to be Anderson, Randall Graves' character, opted out of reprise his role despite a completed script. At the time, Smith doubted the film would ever be made. However, a year later, Smith suffered a near-fatal heart attack, hence the heart attack in this film where Randall Graves plays him. It's only fair that he does since he didn't want to be in the film in the first place, right? Experience inspired him to write uh, Clerks 3 script from scratch. Doing away the original planned storyline in regards to the Ranger Danger uh, aspect and a whole new quick stop. Smith, Smith, yep, Smith, Mr. Smithers, yeah, The Simpsons, great, I'm freaking just, woo, 
I'm dumb. Okay, moving on. Smith later reflected that the original script strayed too far from the original Clerks. Nothing, excuse me, not nothing, noting it was written by a guy who didn't know a thing about death, and he was ultimately glad that it was never made. Smith later refused the original opening scene featuring Jay and Silent Bob getting arrested alongside Dante and Randall in the original Clerks 3 script, Jay and Silent Bob reboot. In 2019, Smith announced that the whole... I can't even fucking speak English. Yeah, he announced that his whole hurt. Well, might want to put some preparation H on it. No. Fuck, I can't even read. Uh, Smith announced that he would do a live reading of the original, now aborted Clerks 3 script at the First Avenue Playhouse in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. Reading was held on August 3rd, 2019, the same month revealed at San Diego Comic-Con that he was writing a new script for Clerks 3 and promised to make the film. <sighs> Filming. Principal photography uh, began August 2nd, 2021 in Red Bank, New Jersey, wrapping August 31st that same year. Wow, so they literally did it in less than a month. That's crazy. Post-production. Completed February 13th of 2022, announcing a trailer slated in May. Uh, the first cut of the trailer was set to release during San Diego Comic-Con uh, of that year, 2022, which would run from July 21st to the 24th. Uh, the film is dedicated to Lisa Spoonauer, who played Caitlin Bree in the original Clerks and the Clerks animated series. Spoonauer passed away in 2017. Release. It had a world premiere August 24th, uh, 2022 in L.A., followed by a roadshow tour, uh, and then had a limited release in the U.K. September 16th. Home Media, October 14th, 2022, released in 4K Ultra HD and then DVD December 6th as of last year, 2022. Rotten Tomatoes, 62% on 125 reviews. Like I said, I think it deserves more, but I can, I guess, see where they're coming from. The consensus here is that Clerks 3 isn't even supposed to be here today. Ha ha ha. But this surprisingly emotional return to the quick stop wraps up the trilogy in a fan-pleasing fashion. If it's so fan-pleasing, then what's with your 62%? That's, what I, that's all I'm asking. Metacritic assigned the film a weighted average of 50 out of 100. Uh, mixed or average reviews. And... I, I guess compared to the first two, the first two being just clearly comic, just genius. And then this one being, yeah, an amalgamation, an accumulation of both the first two films and then clearly them growing up and then obviously experiencing life or death situations and having a much more emotional sense of gravitation towards a script. I mean, yeah, I, I get where they're coming from, but I'm glad that I watched it and I'm glad that I went over the history of it. And uh, there you have it. Moving on. Just listen to that, man. I hope you guys can hear that. All right. I'm turning it up. I don't care. All right. Well, I said I was going to talk about some music since I don't really talk about music all too often on my show. I feel like I really need to. So, And I just chose random bands off the top of my head that I was like, yep, I like all these. And I felt like they needed to be discussed. So I'm playing Budgie in the background. Best of Budgie. Yes, is Budgie a band? There's not to be confused with a parrot-like parakeet-looking bird, I just realized. Um a Welsh heavy metal band from Cardiff. The band formed in 1967 and the following year recorded a demo in 1971. The first album of blues-oriented rock produced by Roger Bain, released on MCA. A classic power trio with the occasional keyboard player released 10 albums overall from MCA, A&M, and RCS between 1971 and 1982, attracting a fair number of fans, achieving modest commercial success. It is very much the forerunners of heavy metal and hard rock along the lines of Black Sabbath and like Led Zeppelin. And I don't really feel like they get talked about enough. So that's why I'm here to do that for you guys. And you need to get out there and listen to some Budgie. One of the earliest heavy metal bands, according to Gary Sharp Young, they were a seminal influence on many acts of that scene. 
particularly the so-called new wave of British heavy metal and later acts such as Metallica, been noted as among the heaviest metal of its day, along with probably Blue Cheer at the time as well, and I, I, can, I can get on board with that. <sighs> Under the name Hill's Contemporary Grass in Wales, the original lineup consisted of Burke Shelley on vocals and bass, uh, Tony Borge, Borg, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, I apologize, and vocals, and Ray Phillips on drums. Tony Borg was on guitar and vocals, excuse me. After forming gigs in 1968, the band changed their name to Budgie the following year and recorded their first demo. The band had initially considered going under the name Six Ton Budgie, uh, but decided the shorter single word variant was preferable. Burke Shelley has said that the band's name came from the fact that he loved the idea of playing noisy, heavy rock, but calling ourselves after something diametrically opposed to that. Interesting. The debut album of Strong Blues-Oriented Rock recorded at rock-filled studios with Black Sabbath producer Roger Bain. Released in 1971, followed by Squawk in 1972. Hence, the uh, obviously, the um, the bird uh, aforementioned uh, slightly a little earlier. The third album, Never Turn Your Back on a Friend, 1973, contained Bread Fam, which was covered by Metallica in 87. Metallica had covered another budgie song, Crash Course in Brain Surgery, earlier on in their career. Ray Phillips left the band before the fourth album, In For The Kill, was ever recorded. He was replaced by Pete Boot. In 74, Boot was replaced by Steve Williams for the album Bandolier. Four concepts promoting this album, uh, if I were a Britannia, I'd wave the rules. The band were augmented by second guitarist Mike Miff Isaac, interesting, from the 1978 LP Impeccable, featuring the 79 film J-Men Forever. Interesting. The band continued to have success during the new wave of the British heavy metal period, playing the Reading Festival in 1980 after headlining the festival in 82. They built a following in Poland uh, where they played the first heavy metal band behind the Iron Curtain in 82. Also notable was their on-tour support of Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz tour, and rightly so. I mean, it's very much the same time, similar uh, regional uh, geographically uh, created as well. The band stopped gigging in 1987. Members went into studio production, occasionally guesting on other projects. Thomas most notably worked on the Phenomena CD, uh, Glenn Hughes, out of the Black Sabbath Studios. Although the group had little commercial success in America, they enjoyed a strong cult following in Texas, of all places. I, I, I'm reading this all off-rip as much as you guys know. Like I, I know like their first two albums, and then that's really it. I, don't, I like it. I'm just trying to see if I can convey more information to myself that obviously I want to listen to it as well. Anyway, back back to this. Uh, they have been known to receive radio airplay from Joe Anthony and Lou Roney on KMAC Radio in San Antonio in the 70s. The band reformed using various drummers for off gigs in 95 and 96 for outdoor festivals. La Semana Alegre in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Oh, man. I, it's just so good, Budgie. Oh, man. So good. They toured in 2002-2006, mostly in the UK, and the NYC and New Jersey areas, and Dallas as well. In 99, the band officially reformed in Lechtworth. 2006, undertook a 35-date uh, UK tour, released a new album, You're All Living in Cuckoo Land, on November 7th of that year in 2006. 2007, they also played in Sweden and Poland. Fast forward, on March 3rd, 2016, former guitarist John Thomas died at age of 63. Yikes. Uh, being admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. The news of his death was confirmed by drummer Steve Williams. My friend and fellow Budgie band member John Thomas sadly passed away last night, March 2016. My thoughts are with the loved ones that he has left behind. Wow. February 2018, former Budgie drummer Pete Boot died at 67. Wow, two years later. 
For many years, he had been coping with Parkinson's disease. And then April 2018, founder, member, and original drummer uh, Ray Phillips released his autobio. That would be interesting to read. After more than a decade of health issues, including aortic aneurysm and Stickler syndrome, Shelley died on uh, January 10th, 2022 at the age of 71. Man, it sounds like none of them are left, man. Jeez. This is all news to me. I feel like an idiot. I mean, I, I like them. Like I said, I just never really read up on their history and we're doing it together. Musical style and legacy, best known for its hard rock and heavy metal influence and prog rock, as you can hear. It's very much like what influenced, uh, you know, like Rush and uh, Yes, as well as Deep Purple and Blue Oyster Cold at the time. It's just, oh, it's so good. Uh, I, I actually didn't even read that. I just I wasn't even looking at the screen having read that, but this is what I actually just <laughs> began to read now. This is funny. Budgie's music was described as an all-music guide as a cross between Rush, Black Sabbath, uh, <laughs> And Blue Easter Colt and Deep Purple, yes. And I was like, wow, holy crap. I literally just thought of that in my head. And yeah, just so cool that they were thinking the same thing. Oh, man. The final lineup uh, before passing was Burke Shelley as vocals and bass, Steve Williams drums, backup vocals, and Craig Goldie on guitar. Studio albums, as I mentioned, was 71's Budgie, uh, Squawk 72, Never Turn Your Back on a Friend 73, In for the Kill 74, and 75's Bandolier. I'm only going to mention those because I feel like all the other ones, I don't really listen to that much. It's not that I haven't uh, chosen to do so. I just haven't gotten around to it, I guess. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting information. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to find that about uh, Budgie and talk to you guys about it. Moving on to the next band. Let's go. going on guys uh i'm talking to be talking to you guys now about the band called necros i don't know anybody who talks about them like ever really i mean a very very like kind of like underappreciated uh band from the mid to late 70s actually years active 1975 to 1987 i actually tattooed it myself on my left inner ankle uh yeah i i've always enjoyed him i've listened to him for pff, probably 20 plus years now um, Necros was an early American hardcore band from Maumee, Ohio, although they are usually identified with the Detroit music scene at the time. The first band uh, that recorded for Touch and Go Records. Formed in mid-1975 by then-teenagers Barry Hensler on vocals, Andy Wendler on guitar, and Todd Swalla on drums. After going through a handful of bassists, including Donnie Brook, Jeff Alsop, David Cook, Brian Hyland, Jeff Lake, and Brian Polak, or Polak, however you want to pronounce it, sure, why not? Um, I honestly just clicked on Necros on YouTube and just decided to play it through that way. But they do have, uh, I believe, two of their albums on uh, Spotify if anybody's interested. Necros. Uh, Corey Rusk joins the band for the bass. Barry Handler had struck up a friendship with Tesco V and Dave Stimson of Touch and Go magazine after sending them a copy of his own magazine, Schmegma Journal. That's hilarious. V and Stimson became fans and put out the band's first record, a self-titled four-song, seven-inch EP, recorded to a uh, prior that Rusk was joining, most commonly known as Sex Drive, which is, I believe, the album that I'm actually currently listening to. Touch and Go's records then spelled records with a K instead of a C. First release was limited to only 100 copies. Andy Windler left the band in 1981, although he continued to write for them, and Brian Pollock joined on guitar. Later that year, the band recorded and released another self-titled record known as IQ32, produced by Minor Threat vocalist Ian Mackay. This is all news to me. I had no idea. And I was about to say it, and I actually ended up reading it. Released on Discord Records. The nine-song effort released by Touch and Go and Mackay's own Discord Records. Yeah, that's so awesome. That's so cool they got together like that. 
Wendler rejoined on guitar in late 1982 and in 1983. The band recorded and released two more records, a 7-inch and LP, both titled Conquest for Death, which I believe is also on this uh, little uh, playlist I'm listening to of the Necros. Early on, they played with prominent punk bands, including Black Flag, Bad Brains, Sonic Youth, and Minor Threat. I don't even know... Would you consider Sonic Youth? To me, Sonic Youth's like, I don't know, it's like alternative, grungy. It's its own thing. To me, Sonic Youth isn't punk. That's just me. Maybe aesthetically and as far as their DIY is concerned. Uh, musically, I don't think so. Maybe lyrically, sure. And Tesco V's group, The Meat Men. Uh, Where are the Meat Men and you suck. Oh, man, I like The Meat Men. They're cool. I don't really feel like they get a lot of uh, recognition either. Necros also toured as openers for horror punk band The Misfits. Of course they did, including The Misfits' last show in which Todd Swallow stepped in to play drums when Misfits drummer Brian Damage became too drunk to perform. Interesting. In 1983, Corey Russ quit the group to concentrate on touch-and-go and assuming full control of the label and bassist Ron Sikowski stepped in. Despite the group's steady output at their onset, the band did not release another record for two years. In an interview with One Solution magazine, vocalist Barry Hensler became delayed between releases on Rusk's refusal to give the band a de definite uh, answer as to whether or not they were still on Touch and Go. The label had since deleted their Necros releases from their catalog. That sucks. The next Necros release came in 85, two years later, as a split LP with White Flag entitled Jail Jello on Gasatanka Records. Never heard of that one. Now featuring a more distinctly post-hardcore sound, the band followed up with the Split's 1986's Tangled Up LP on Restless Records, along with a single same name on Gasatanka. After spending 1987 tour... Wow, wow, here... Oh, wow, this is interesting. Okay. After spending a 1987 touring first with Megadeth and then later with Circle Jerks, the group then called it quits. Wow. So they lasted about 12 years. A live album, Live or Else, appeared posthumously in 1989, two years later. Post-breakup, though. Interesting enough here. Barry Hensler went on to form the band Big Chief, who recorded for the Sub Pop label. Sub Pop being uh, the label that was um, in charge, essentially, of Nirvana early on. Ran, uh, excuse me, Ron Sikowski and Todd Swalla reunited in the mid-1990s as part of the final lineup of Touch and Go and Laughing Hyenas. Andy Wendler played in a group called Gone in 60 Seconds, also known as G-I-S-S. -S. Interesting. I don't think I've heard these ones. In 2002, a limited only 450 copies pressed, split 10-inch with Authority Abuse, released by Wise Hoodlum Records, featuring live Necros recordings from 81 to 83. The band's first demo was reissued as the Ambionic Sound. That's the one that I know of. That's the one that I believe that is on Spotify, if I'm not mistaken. In 2012, named for the studio where it was recorded. In 2005, Ryko Disc reissued Tangled Up or Live or Else together on one CD, currently the only Necros material available on CD. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, they kind of had a rough... I'm surprised that I even heard about it. I mean, if they've had such a rough like past of like record labels and just distribution and everything and breakups and wow, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, a full lineup of different former members, discography, Conquest for Death, which is currently what I'm listening to, and Tangled Up, 1987, as far as studio releases. Bunch of EPs, compilations, and that's really it. Really not too much on this uh, original hardcore punk band from Ohio and then associated with the Detroit, uh, Wisconsin scene. But there you have it. I'm glad that I was able to find some information on them because I've always liked them. Necros kick ass. All right, next band. One, two, three, go. I actually had full intention of actually finding history or at least information on Oi Scouts, the band. I know they have a 
War is Sick and like Boots for the Beatdown, the 2010 album. I have it. It's on Spotify. Look for Oi Scouts. If you like that Global Threat, ca Casualties, Defiance kind of sound for punk, dude, check them out if you haven't. And I don't know why. I, I can't find anything on them. They have like a Facebook page and it's like they're from New Jersey and that's really all it says. And then I, it vaguely talks about – it's like a sentence or two of like – Here's where their music was recorded. Kind of, I'm like, I can't, I can't just talk about that. So anyway, I decided to look up Antidote, another tattoo that I did myself on my inner, I guess, right calf, if you will. It needs to be redone for sure. But I remember hearing about Antidote from my buddy Kenny back in the day. Same with the Boy Scouts, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, without him, then again, like I, I wouldn't be the, you know, goofy punker that I am today. So thank you, Kenny, for that. So I'm gonna be talking about Antidote. A Dutch punk rock band, actually, from the Netherlands, formed in 1996. Inspired for the band came when the band members had a jam session at the squat De Blau Aunslag, which is pretty cool because they actually have a song called Be Blue. You know, Be Blue, Be Blue, Be I believe it's on this album, Go Pogo, uh, which I'm listening to in the background. I will turn it up just a little bit for those of you that maybe can't hear it. I can hear it just fine, but anyway, who are you? Just kidding. The band has released five <laughs> full-length studio albums and toured extensively in Europe and North America and Russia with its prominent U.S. punk bands such as The Casualties and The Virus. What did I say? The Virus then later on formed uh, Cheap Sex, which, cool name, I guess. Mike Virus is kind of a little bit of a weirdo, I guess, from, so I've been told and what I've read. I don't really want to get into that. That's not my business, but moving back on to uh, Antidote. The music has been categorized as punk, hardcore, or straight-edge. Uh, I didn't know that they were I, – I wouldn't consider them straight edge. I mean because they have an, an album called Let's Get Drunk. So, I mean, I, whatever. Anyway, they write politically motivated songs with lyrics that supported the squatting movement, anti-fascist, anti-homophobic, and even criticized the punk scene itself. So they're very fourth wall meta. Okay, sure, why not? Uh, in 2012, they announced their breakup. And in 2017, the band reunited, actually five years later, for a series of festivals and performances. Barton, Arn, Schmeels, members of Antidote, have been active with the Utrecht-based punk band uh, I Dude, all these foreign names, I, I am butchering the crap out of them, sorry. Uh, discography, My Life, uh, came out in 1999, actually. That was their first one. LP, CD, Uncharged Records. And then in 2000, Go Pogo came out on Dirty Faces. 2003, Back in Year Zero. Um, oh, it's an EP actually that came out. Let's get drunk. It was a seven inch on injection records. And then, um, De Blue Mount Blijven or whatever on injection records came out 2000. There's a demo tape split EPs. Uh, I never heard of those, but I mean, yeah, I, I know of go Pogo, which is obviously what I'm listening to my life and let's get drunk. I, I knew those for sure. So that's pretty cool. Really not too much on this band, but, uh, yeah, I'm glad that I got to listen to it and talk about it. I mean, I can listen to these guys forever but there you have it there's antidote only a couple minutes moving on to the next band there's probably a lot more on the next one oh yeah some og og freaking hip-hop i haven't listened to uh Jurassic Five in a long time. I remember hearing about them from, I believe it was my cousin. I think it was like his birthday. He was a couple years older than me and we ended up buying him. I think it was like a CD. And I remember hearing it and I was like, dude, this is like straight up just 411, like Logic 8, I don't know, like old hookup shorties, like straight up just skate hip hop. And I'm like, oh, it's just so good. I Half of the time, like, because like, I love this stuff. I love Talib Kweli. I love, uh, you know, Most Def. They did Black Star. I love, you know, obviously Bone Thugs. Um, Dude, I'm like, I'm like drawing a blank here. Like, um, 
you know, DJ Honda, all this stuff from like the nineties, as far as like OG hip hop, like I listen to it. I don't necessarily gravitate towards it as much as rock, nothing personal. It's just, this still holds a very, very special place in my heart though. And I wanted to talk about it. So Jurassic five, an American alternative hip hop group formed by rappers, Charles Stewart, uh, Dante Gibbons, uh, Courtney Henderson, Mark Stewart, Mark Postick, and Lucas McFadden. A uh, six-piece crew that was formed came out of L.A. That's news to me. Didn't know that. That's cool. They broke up in 2007. Also didn't know that. Shortly after releasing their fourth LP, Feedback, citing musical differences, returned to the stage in 2013, six years later, and released a new track in 2014. The members have continued to release music individually. Historically, they debuted nationally in 1995 with their first single, Unified Revolution. Uh, released their first record, Jurassic 5 EP, in 97. After they put out their first record, it cemented their position in the 90s as alternative hip-hop movement alongside artists as uh, Blackstar, what did I mention, Cool Keith. We can't forget about uh, Tribe Called Quest, too. I mean, uh, Naughty Bar Nature, uh, Public Enemy. Like, dude, there's just uh, there's so many just good ones out there. Man, I want to listen to some OG hip-hop now. It's been a while. I'm just, I feel like all I've been on is just like metal and punk, but eh, you guys know me all too well. For those of you that at least know me now via my podcast, it's those, that's my bread and butter. And I do enjoy jazz and classic rock too, but back to this. The group later signed to Interscope Records and the EP was repackaged with additional tracks and released in December of 98 as the full length eponymous debut album titled Jurassic 5. In 2012, excuse me. Uh, take out a decade. In 2002, interview with the Sydney Morning Herald, the group explained the origin of their name. I played the song to my friend's mother and she made a joke. You guys sound like the Fantastic Five, but you sound more like the Jurassic Five. That's cool. We started laughing and well, the name stuck. That's pretty cool. It was like it started as a joke name. That's really cool. Followed their second album with Quality Control, which peaked at number 43 on the Billboard 200 at the time. That's cool. 2002, they released the third album, Power and Numbers, peaked at number 15 on the Billboard 200, and eventually toured with Cut Chemist. I remember Cut Chemist. Okay, I take that back. I forgot all about that one. Who left the group to pursue a uh, solo career? Uh, excuse me. They toured without Cut Chemist. Excuse me. Wow. I, wow. I did not know that. Okay. The remaining five members released their fourth and final album, uh, Feedback, in 2006. The album peaked at number 15 on the Billboard 200. Yeah. Uh, Freaking commercials. Whatever. I guess we'll just roll with it. Um, <laughs> the group split in 2007. Reasons for the breakup attributed to disagreements among members of the group. Dude, screw that. I don't want any fucking thing playing in the background. How about that? Fucking stupid-ass commercials. Uh, in 2013, the group reformed, including the return of Cut Chemist for the Coachella Valley Music Festival and Arts International Tour, primarily in the UK, but also including dates in Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Japan, and the US. Played in Gastonbury in 2014, it had a world of... Excuse me, not a world. A word-of-mouth reunion tour during the summer 2014. 2016, they released their first new song in a decade, Customer Service. Not pretty cool. Yeah, they... Yeah, they've been around for a hot minute, you know, uh, breakups and coming back, and I'm happy for them. I like that. I actually didn't really have too much to say about these guys either from what I was able to find, but I'm glad that I talked about them. I, I've always liked Jurassic 5. Like I said, I remember, I think I bought Quality Control. It was at Warehouse for my cousin, and I remember just, it was such a big deal, like them and like Wu-Tang and all that like super group stuff that was coming out like in the uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, in other media, uh, they were actually in 2000s film, uh, excuse me, in grind session, I guess, apparently. Oh, there was a video game, excuse me. Also, in 2000, Jet Set's radio released in North America, including the track Improvise from Quality Control. I don't think I knew that. I do enjoy Jet Set Radio for uh, Dreamcast. 
Other pressings have also uh, tracked the Concrete and Clay, instead instrumental version of that same song. The following year, the track Great Expectations from the same album was included in Matt Hoffman's Pro BMX. That's cool. What's Golden was featured on ATV Off-Road Fury 2, also in Forza Horizon 3 and a fictional radio block party. A Day at the Races featuring Big Daddy Kane and Percy P. appeared in 2003 skateboarding game Thug, Tony Hawk's Underground. Hell yeah. That makes a lot of sense too because they also had a lot of good hip-hop in their uh, uh, stuff too. I mean, they didn't... <sighs> yeah, yeah, anyway. Jurassic Five is just solid stuff. I'm so, It's like getting me like hyped right now. The song in the house from Freeback was featured in NBA Live 06 excuse me, had to burp, and Work It Out was in NBA Live 07, while Red Hot was featured in SSX on tour. Makes sense, because I felt like I remember hearing it, and I loved SSX on tour on GameCube, that's where I played it, although I have it now on the original Xbox, and it's either a super, super clean copy, or I might have it sealed still, I'm not sure, not that it's worth very much, but I'm glad I have it, I, I definitely want to get through it, I don't think I ever beat it, I got really, really far, I'm not talking about SSX on tour right now, I'm talking about Jurassic 5, okay. Also featured on a high fidelity from Power Numbers was included in the 2019 game Trials Rising. Trials being a dirt bike game. The group featured in 2001's hip-hop documentary Scratch. That's badass. They were also featured in an online magazine Urban South's elite list of underground hip-hop albums. Yeah, they, they have a huge, huge uh, appearances and just influence on the uh, culture as a whole. But there you have it. <sighs> All right, moving on, guys. What's going on, guys? I got uh, some relaxing video game music from the N64 SoundFot playing in the background. Meanwhile, I'm going to be talking about the Famicom Disk System. I don't know if I've actually really talked about it all that much, other than just like mentioning that, yes, it's a peripheral for the Famicom uh, itself, but commonly uh, shortened to just the FDS, or at least that's what I call it, a peripheral for the Famicom. Famicom, yep, Famicom, sure, fuck it. Famicom Computer Home uh, Game Console released February 21st, 1986. It uses proprietary floppy disks, also called disk cards, for cheaper data storage, and it adds a new high-fidelity sound channel for supporting disk systems. I'm going to turn down just a little bit. All right. Clear out some shit. Okay, here we go. Fundamentally, the disk system serves uh, simply to enhance some aspects already inherent to the base of the uh, original Famicom. Better sound and cheaper games with the disadvantages of its high initial price. And they actually had like these little kiosks where you could essentially kind of like how Redbox works. You would turn in your disk and you can have it rewritten to another game and pay for it and get your disk back out. Pretty cool. I will uh, get into that uh, momentarily. Uh, slow speed and lower reliability, unfortunately. However, the boost to the market of the affordable and writable mass storage temporarily served as an enabling technology for the creation of new types of video games, as I stated. They could totally just copyright, or not necessarily copyright, they can like rewrite whatever game you want to the uh, disc. You could even make your own games, essentially, including the vast open world progress saving adventures of the best selling Legend of Zelda 1986 and Metroid the same year. With the cost effective and swift release, such as the best selling Super Mario Bros. 2, and nationwide leaderboards and contests via the in-store disc fax kiosks, as I mentioned. Considered to be forerunners of today's online achievement and distribution systems like that of Redbox, Netflix, and so forth. 89, the Famicom, Famicom disc system was inevitably obsoleted by its improvising semiconductor technology of game cartridges. Right. Totally get that. Uh, 1989, at that time, being Sega Genesis. Although, uh, what, 85 also had a... Uh, the Nintendo over here, so I, I feel like that's a little misconstrued that uh, year, but whatever. Moving on. The Disk System's uh, lifetime sales reached 4.4 million units in 1990, making it the most successful console add-on of all time at that time. Because obviously a Sega CD came out, and then there was the TurboGrafx CD and so forth, which I guess maybe compared to Nintendo, perhaps at the time, probably flopped. 
Uh, despite not being sold outside of Japan, the final game released in 1992 was its software discontinued in 2003. Nintendo officially discontinued its technical support in 2007. That's insane that they were still supporting it, even though it was strictly uh, crazy. Uh, by 85, the Famicom... Fam uh, there it is again. I said it again. Fuck it. I'm, I'm rolling with it. The Famicom... <laughs> dominated the Japanese home game market, selling over 3 million units within a year and a half. Because of its success, the company had difficulty with keeping up its demand for new stock, often getting flooded with calls from retailers asking for more systems. Nintendo specifically looked to floppy disks, which were quickly becoming the standard for storage media for personal computers. Floppy disks were cheap to produce and rewrite, allowing games to be easily produced during the manufacturing process. Seeing its potential, Nintendo began to work on a disk-based peripheral for the Famicom. For its proprietary diskette platform, they dubbed the Disc Card. Uh, Nintendo chose to base it on its multi, excuse me, Mitsumi's Quick Disc Media format, a cheaper alternative to floppy disks for Japanese home computers. Formatted presented a number of advantages over cartridges: increased storage capacity, allowing for larger games, additional sound channels, and the ability to save players' progress rather than having to either beat it in uh, one sitting or just leave it on. And then you know your mom comes home and turns it off when you're doing homework. And mom, why'd you turn it off? I'm trying to play. Or like the hundred base character, like uh, what was it? Freaking, uh, like code or whatever that you would have to input in order to continue your game. It's such a pain in the ass. Uh, the add-on itself, produced by Masayuki Uemura, the Nintendo Research and Development same team designed the Famicom itself originally. Uh, released February twenty-first, eighty-six. Retail price of eighty dollars U.S. at the time. Wow. Uh, it's definitely not that inexpensive now. Uh, Legend of Zelda as a launch title alongside disc releases of earlier Famicom games. Marketing material featured a yellow mascot character named Disc Gun or Mr. Disc. I would totally get that tattooed. It looks like a little puzzle piece. Pretty cute. Yeah, I, I called it cute. What? What of it? Anyway. <laughs> uh, the Famicom disc system sold over 300,000 units within three months. So, what is it? 100,000 per the three months. Okay, give or take, right? Anyway, jumping to over 2 million by the end of the year, Nintendo remained confident that this system would be a surefire success and ensured that all future first-party releases would be exclusive to the peripheral. Coinciding with its release, Nintendo installed several disc writer kiosks in various toy and electronic stores across the country, Japan only, as I stated. These kiosks allowed customers to bring in their disc games, have a new game rewritten onto them for a 500 uh, yen fee. Uh, basically a $5 American, I guess, if you think about it. Sounds like, uh, I believe it's Zelda in the background, if I'm not mistaken. It is Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. What did I say? I kind of just had a feeling. Okay. Blake discs could also be purchased for 2,000 yen. Uh, Nintendo also introduced a special high score tournament for the specific disc system games. Players could submit their scores directly to Nintendo uh, machines found in retail stores. Winners would receive exclusive prizes, including Famicom branded stationary sets and gold-colored punch-out cartridge. That would be really cool to have. That's probably an expensive thing to have now. Nintendo of America announced plans to release the disc system to international counterpart to its Nintendo uh, entertainment system in America. However, these plans were eventually scrapped. I think it would have done well because, I don't know, moving on. It, it, it would have probably done pretty well because people like Nintendo and they would have paid for it. Uh, the discs themselves are fragile and they lack a shutter made them collect desks, uh, dust and fingerprints relatively easily, eventually rendering them unplayable as a result over time. Piracy was also rampant, as I stated, uh, with the disc copying devices and bootleg games becoming a commonplace in stores and in magazine uh, advertisements. Third-party developers for the disc system were also angered towards Nintendo's strict licensing terms, requiring that it received 50% copyright ownership of any and all software release. So that's... 
that's a no-brainer for a lot of people to be like, yep, I'm out, no thanks. This led to several major developers such as Namco, and uh, Namco being uh, what, Pac-Man, Hudson Soft being <clears throat> excuse me, Bomberman and Bonk, for example, refusing to produce games for it. Four months after the disc system was released, Capcom, Mega Man, Blue, Bomber, of course, classic, released a Famicom uh, conversion of Ghosts and Goblins on a 128 uh, kilobyte cartridge, later than the disc's card uh, size of 112 uh, kilobyte capacity, which as a result made consumers and developers less impressed with the disc system's technological features. Retailers disliked the disc writer kiosk for taking up too much space and for generally being unprofitable. I, I can see that. The disc system's vague error messages, long loading times, and the poor quality of the rubber drive belt, which from what I hear has to be replaced pretty consistently, uh, spun the discs also cited as attributing to its downfall. By 1989, advancements in technology made cartridge games much cheaper and easier to produce, leaving the Famicom disc system obsolete. Retailers were critical of the simply abandoning the disc writers, leaving stores and large kiosks that taking up vital space while companies began to release or move their games from the disc system overall to a standard cartridge instead towards the end of development. Squaresoft ported Final Fantasy over to the Famicom as a cartridge game with its own battery backup save feature. Uh, might as well be maybe the first one to do that alongside, well, no, Dragon Quest required a, a character code in order to... Uh, get back into the game. Otherwise, I think you could save it. It was like at the bottom of the screen, like near the castle or something. Anyway, Nintendo officially discontinued the Famicom disc system in 1990, selling around 4.4 million units total. Disc writing services still kept in operation until September 30th of 2003, uh, providing service up until 2007, as I stated. Hardware versions. There was uh, Sharp actually released the twin Famicom, uh, a model that features a built-in disk system. You know what? Here, let's let's take a look. I'm just going to type in Famicom disk system and see what it goes for on a price charting. Let me see if it pops up. Loose, $100. Complete, only a couple more dollars. Uh, $107. So loose, that's actually not bad. Let me type in the, uh, what is it? The, what did I say it was called? The uh, twin Famicom. Let me, let me try that. Let me see what pops up here for that. I want the Twin Famicom console. Sharp, Twin, oh yeah, okay. Uh, loose, about anywhere, depending on the color, there's a black or a red one, anywhere between about 150 to 250 loose. That's because it plays not only the Famicom cartridges, it does play the disc system as well, so that makes perfect sense. What do we got going on here? Blue Resort, oh, it's Bomberman music, that's cool. I like how they changed the little uh, CRT TV in the background too, that's pretty cool. Anyway. Ah, uh, boy. So, the uh, widespread copyright violation in Japan's predominantly personal computer-based uh, game rental market inspired corporates to petition the government to ban the rental of all video games in 84. Wow. 86, as video game increasingly expanded from computers into video game console market, Nintendo advertised a promise to install 10,000 Mamacom disc writer kiosks within one year. That's incredible. Wow. Uh, in 1987, disc writer kiosks in select locations were also provisioned as uh, fax systems for an online concept. That's incredible. Like so much different peripherals and just hardware that was just included in these things. In order to save their high scores at leisure at home on the uh, system, they then bring the disc to the retailer's uh, kiosk, which collated and transmitted the player's scores via fax to Nintendo Corporation. That's crazy, man. Uh, players participated in a nationwide leaderboard with unique prizes. The kiosk uh, was very popular, remained available in 2003. Uh, Nintendo Power Service in Japan was based on rewritable flash media cartridges for the Super Famicom and Game Boy from 97 to 2007. That's incredible. 
They supported it for that long. Uh, calling the Disk Writer one of the coolest things Nintendo ever created. Uh, modern digital distribution could learn from the Disk Writer in that the system's premise of game rental and achievements would still be innovative in today's retail and online stores. Agreed. Nintendo Life said that it was truly groundbreaking for its time and could be considered a forerunner of modern distribution methods such as Xbox Live and PlayStation Network as well as Steam, for example. That's so cool. Uh, there are about 200 games on Famicom Disk Systems Library. I'm going to get into a little bit of the games. Uh, Zelda is known as Zelda no Densetsu, which is the Legend of Zelda. Um, some of the FDS games are obviously exclusives. Some of them are writer exclusives. Many were released years later on the cartridge format, such as the Legend of Zelda for NES in 87 or for Famicom in 94. The most notable FDS in originals include Legend of Zelda, uh, Zelda 2, The Adventure Link, Kid Icarus, Metroid, and Akuma Joe Dracula, also known as Castlevania. The original Castlevania was an original Famicom Disk System game. It looks like a, a floppy disk, relatively. I'm looking at them right now. Uh, there was a, a branch called the Disk Original Group, a software label that published Disk System games for the Japanese PC software. Adventure was largely a failure, almost pushed a pre-Final Fantasy Square bank or Square into bankruptcy at the time. That's crazy. Final Fantasy was to be released for the FDS, but disagreement over Nintendo's copyright policies caused Square to change its position and release the game as a cartridge. Which, dude, if they if Final Fantasy was going to be an FDS original, it probably wouldn't have the same notoriety or just fan base or success that it does today because it probably would have flopped no pun intended with the whole floppy disk uh <laughs> capability there but yeah wow that's incredible that's really that's a trip if they went the one route yeah they probably would not be around today nintendo released a disc version of super mario brothers in addition to the cartridge version the western market super mario brothers 2 i already uh, knew this being a nerd uh, originated from the disc only game yume kojo doki doki panic it's basically a rewritten skin of that original game for Super Mario Bros. 2. They utilized the cheaper, more dynamic disc medium for a disc writer exclusive as an early adver game. Kayateka Mario Bros., literally the return of Mario Bros., is a remastered version of that game with an enhanced jump controls on a high score saving, plus a new slot machine minigame co-branded the Nagatanian Food Company, apparently. The final uh, Famicom Disk System game release was Jenkin Disk Joe in December of 1992, a rock-paper-scissors game featuring the Disk System mascot, Disk Kun. Kun, however you want to... Disk Kun, Kun... I'm not quite sure to pronounce it. Anyway, uh, Legacy. The Famicom Disk System briefly served as an enabling technology for the creation of new wave home console video games and a new type of video game experience, mostly due to tripling the size of cheap game storage compared to the affordable cartridge ROMs and by storing gamers' progress with their vast new adventures. It was revolutionary at the time, and it still is today in, in my book. These games include the open-world design enduring series launch The Legend of Zelda 86, Metroid 86, and its launch game Zelda becoming very popular and leading to sequels which considered some of the greatest games of all time. Oh, man, I feel like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, like losing my breath. I would have got him 10. Oh. <laughs> Almost one decade ahead of Nintendo's Satella uh, service, which was on Super Nintendo. The Famicom Disk System's writable and portable storage technology served as enabling technology for the innovation of online leaderboards and contests via the in-store disk, fax, kiosk, which are now seen as the earliest forerunners of the modern online gaming and distribution. Oh, yeah. With its library of 200 original games, which is relatively short, granted uh, the N64 had something like 300, if I'm not mistaken, plus around there. So, yeah, very, very short-lived uh, library of games. I mean, not nearly as short-lived as the, uh, was it the Virtual Boy, which was like 22, 27 games, something like that. Some of the FDS exclusives, many were released one or two years later on cartridges for Famicom NES, though without the Famicom Disk System's additional sound channel. So, yeah. 
And then obviously the, uh, I guess, follow-up was the Satella View as well as N64's uh, DD disk drive, which maybe another episode I'll talk about the DD, but there you have it. It was fun talking about the Famicom disk system. When I was in Akihabara in uh, Japan, I saw it everywhere. I should have picked it up because I already have a Famicom. It would have been a cool piece to have, uh, you know, and there are some English-friendly games that you could play, but moving on to the next thing. Let's go. Well, I got some uh, Castlevania 64 music going on in the background. Annex Silent Madness from uh, relaxing video game music in a cozy room, Nintendo 64. Uh, thank you, New Game Plus, for that, because I definitely listen to your guys' podcast. I listened to it earlier today, and you guys were uh, talking Tears of the Kingdom as well as uh, the original Castlevania. So that's almost like coming full circle. The original Castlevania, which I actually just talked about moments ago. Boom! It's like a coincidence. Uh, sheer coincidence, I swear. It's nothing that I planned. Anyway talking stretch armstrong it's about a toy apparently there's a punk band that i had no idea stretch armstrong at three separate words i might have to give that one a go there's also a uh, utah-based ska band but anyway no i'm talking about the toy action figure company from uh kenner as well as hasbro created in the u.s available from 1990 excuse me 1976 to 1997 and then 2016 to present materially it's made from plastic rubber and gel a large gel-filled action figure that was introduced in 76 by Kenner in 2016 at the New York Toy Fair, Hasbro announced the return of the uh, toy to its original 1976 design, which makes sense because as I stated, I was in big lots and I've seen it. It's not nearly like the size of like, it used to be about the size of about three quarters of a G.I. Joe and now it looks like it's about maybe four to six inches tall. It's, it's rather small now. Made of uh, latex rubber filled with proprietary gelled substance similar to corn syrup allows it to retain its shape for a short time before shrinking to its original shape. It's an action figure shaped as a short muscular man with blonde hair wearing, wearing black trunks. Doll's most notable feature is that it can be stretched from its original size, 15 inches, uh, pretty much as I stated, to about 5 feet. Crazy. If a tear does develop, it can be filled with an adhesive bandage. Information on how to repair a stretch is provided in the toys instruction booklet included in the original box. Historically, Toy concept created by Jesse D. Horowitz, uh, designer for Kenner's R&D group, uh, Research and Development. Approved for development by the head, uh, James Kuhn, or Kuhn, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, excuse me, vice president of Kenner. The stretch man idea uh, was called, pursued with two different bodies in mind. One with a sumo wrestler and the other was an all-American all -American blonde hunk, i.e. essentially Hulk Hogan, I guess, if you will. Horowitz sculpted the models himself instead of hiring a freelancer. The sumo man was too bulky and large, so the all-American body was cast by Kenner's model maker, Richard Dobek. Let's see let's see what tunes we got going on here. This is uh, Ocarina of Time, Zora's Domain. Oh, Zora being the uh, water uh, temple. That's cool. The result resin model was taken to a latex model manufacturer in New Jersey where its first bodies were dipped. Originally, springs were thought of the way to stretch the man. However, they were thought to be too awkward and stiff. And rightly so, I, I can, yeah, I agree. Too difficult to insert and would literally pierce the skin. Yes, they would have done that as well. A chemical engineer pursued a liquid sugar idea, which eventually proved successful. Tremendous qualities of the Cairo corn syrup was, was purchased from an A&P supermarket. The syrup was boiled down to get the proper viscosity, viscosity being liquid's resistance to flow, for those of you who don't know. Uh, and Horowitz flew to Kenner's headquarters in Cincinnati, Ohio, presented the concept to Bernie Loomis, Kenner's president. He loved it, and so a toy icon was born. The original Stretch Armstrong figure was conceived and developed by Bill Armasmith. I was about to say Aerosmith. Love in an elevator. No. Uh, <laughs> was in production from 76 until 1980. 
Uh, Fisher manufactured, uh, yes, I believe Fisher Toys or Fisher product, whatever the hell you want to call it, released the figure in Europe under the license from Kenner. Of course, uh, I can see that because Kenner did a lot of toys. Uh, and they're still great. I, I have Misfits toys myself. They're fucking phenomenal. The original 1970s toy commands high uh, prices on the secondary collector's market, selling for hundreds, perhaps thousands of U.S. dollars. Though storage and play, the figure could become damaged and rendered useless. There are still original stretched Armstrongs that have survived the passage of time and remarkably preserved through a sheer luck or being stored at the correct temperature. The figure keeps best at room temperature. Stretched Armstrong made from latex rubber, gelled uh, corn syrup, allowing to retain shape for a short time before shrinking to its original shape. Estimated 16, excuse me, I, I I can count, right? 67 different versions from Japan, Germany, Italy, France, and Australia. Other countries released Stretch Armstrong variants between 76 and the 1990s. Stretch X-Ray, 77. Uh, wow, Mr. Musculo, 1977, the Italian version. These are all new to me. I only know the classic, yeah. Uh, Elastic Donald Duck, 1980. Mickey Mouse, 1980. Batman as well. Incredible Hulk. Uh, 1979, Plastic Man, 79, Serpent, uh, Hasbro, Stretch Mask, Stretch, Vac Man, Morph Man, Gumby, and Pokey Stretch. I think I vaguely remember those. The last two were filled with a granular solid in place of the viscous liquid found in other figures. A vacuum pump which attached to the heads of these figures removed the air from within which froze the toy in its stretched position, making perfect sense. Uh, reissued in the 90s by Cap Toys with canine sidekick Fetch Armstrong. Eh, that deserves definitely a little joke there. Reissued Armstrong had a more comical, exaggerated face, and the evil X-Ray Wretch Armstrong has a skull face, sports a mohawk, and also stretches. That's pretty cool. Wretch Armstrong seems to be redesigned, smalling remake of the stretch X-Ray, but in reality it looks nothing like the 1970s version. The evil X-Ray is only 7 inches tall, whereas the stretch was over 12 inches. There was actually a cancellation uh, of a film, apparently. In 1994, Walt Disney Studios obtained the film rights to the character. Several scripts were written, including original version family comedy written by Greg Erb, a co-writer of Disney, uh, cast with Tim Allen in the role of Stretch Armstrong as a kind of single dad who is a research scientist and is stretched too thin, trying to balance his work and family life before he inadvertently accidentally takes one of the ex experimental serums, giving him himself stretchy powers. I'm glad that they canceled it because it probably would have been really stupid. Uh, knowing me, I would have had it on VHS and probably DVD, Blu-ray, all that crap anyway. <laughs> A later version from screenwriter Michael Kalisnico. Sorry. I don't know why I'm saying sorry. The guy probably doesn't listen to my podcast anyway. Uh, was created and was set in San Francisco. It was uh, about a somewhat socially awkward nobody beset with troubles trying to venture out of his falling personal life and his genetically modified with stretching abilities. After a failed nuclear fusion experiment, most of his newfound abilities to solve the tragedy has befallen his family. Among the actors who were considered for the role were Danny DeVito, who refused to do the film if the script made any jokes about his height. Wow, I didn't realize he was so sensitive about it. Uh, several other writers, such as Mike Werb and Michael Collery, provided rewrites and Peter Kerr were attached to direct, uh, but due to lack of time on the rights, ideas from Disney were scrapped and the rights were bought back by Hasbro. 2008, Universal Studios signed a deal with Hasbro to create another film based on it from a screenplay written by Nicholas Stoller. Announced that the studio's co-chairman, Donna Langley and Taylor Lautner, oh, geez, fucking... Twilight, oh boy, would star as Armstrong and the film would be in 3D. Oh, I'm so glad they didn't do that. I rather would have watched the 1994 Disney one instead. Jeez. Stated that Laudner's success, energy, and athleticism, he is a perfect fit to be the unlikely hero. God, ugh, just cut it out. Like, I almost want to puke on my computer and turn it off. Stated Stretch Armstrong is a character that I have wanted to see on a screen for a long time. It's a story about a guy stretching the limits of what is possible to become all that he can be. That just sounds, ugh. Another script was being made by Oda Kirk, which the guy behind Ace Ventura, sure. Uh, uh, 
I hope he would have made it like super silly and clearly it didn't ever get made anyway. So introducing the character in the form of an uptight spy who stumbles across a stretching formula, which now he takes and must adjust to the newfound abilities when fighting crime in his everyday life. Picture blank man with stretching abilities, I guess. <laughs> blank man was awesome. I loved it. Two years later, after the excitement drummed up by the studios for the character, Relatively Media uh, announced that they had picked up a film after it was dropped by Universal, set a new release date of April 11, 2014. Planning to make the film more serious than originally intended by Universal, Relatively hired the Manchurian candidate, writer Dean Georgeris? Whatever. Well, I'll just say Dean. How about that? To write a new script, dropped Lautner, thank you, and hired Breck Eisner to direct. I'm assuming related to Michael Eisner or just a coincidence, Michael Eisner being the Disney CEO for a long time. The film origin story was going to introduce an un... I can't even freaking... I'm just talking too fast. An overwhelmed high schooler and the life or death consequences he was going to face after undergoing a transformation, granting him superhuman abilities. Production was scheduling... Uh, scheduled, excuse me, to start filming on May 15th, 2013. If I didn't know any better, I'd say this was Donkey Kong 64. Yes, it is. I knew it. Hell yeah. Love Donkey Kong 64. In Montreal, but in October 2013, the Hasbro studio had abandoned the film to work on other projects, as well as a possibility of Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters for TV. Four attempted films Hasbro Studios made a deal with, streaming services uh, Netflix for a full 26 episode of an animated series, making it the first deal between the company and a streaming service. The superhero action comedy animated series followed a teenager named Jake Armstrong, his two best friends. They go into action after being exposed to the experimental chemical making uh, Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, essentially, a team of stretchable superheroes who must work together and embark on a series of adventures. It debuted, actually, on Netflix, November 17, 2017. I don't think I knew that. I'm going to have to look into that. It's probably not very good. Well, wh what am I saying? I mean, I, I don't know anything about it. For all I know, it could be a, a decent watch. A series developed by Kevin Burke and Chris Doc Wyatt. Uh, comics, apparently. There was a comic book series as well. ID, IDW Publishing in 2017. A new comic book based on the Netflix series. Wow. Video game. Did not know this either. 2018, a video game called Stretch Armstrong. The Breakout was released on Netflix. It's a game on Netflix? That's so dumb. There's no fucking controller. And, oh, it's, that was a stupid idea, but I'm going to continue reading this. The game involves Jake Armstrong, Ricardo, and Nathan stopping villains from rampaging through Charter City. Well, at least you guys get to close out with uh, some Donkey Kong 64 tunes. But there you have it. I talked Solo, Clerks 3, Budgie, Necros, The Intentions of Talking, Oy Scouts, but Disguise... Wow. Decided to talk about Antidote instead. Uh, and Jurassic 5, which I'm glad because I haven't listened to hip-hop in a hot minute. Uh, still just been playing Rage and Sparks of Hope. I need to bust out some of my older stuff. I do. I look at it and I'm like, I need to play more. I just, I've been in the mood to, I guess, talk to you guys and watch movies as of late and uh, exercise again a lot more, hopefully. Uh, Famicom Disc System and closing out with Stretch Armstrong. As always, thank you for the love and support. Here is episode 80 and I will see you guys next time. Let's close out with some Donkey Kong 64 music. <laughs>